During World War II, close to this very spot, science bore a child that changed the course of human relations. And to this day, threatens to end human history. It was called, innocuously enough, the Manhattan Project. And it grew into the terror we all have come to know as the hydrogen bomb. But this year, only a stone's throw from here, science delivered a new child. November 8th, 12.20 a.m. Dr. Jules Kopernik, Ph.D. in experimental biology and co-director of related research at Oceanic International Oil Corporation, returned to his place of employ after a month-long absence. He'd been attending a world ecology conference in Helsinki and came right to his lab after debarking a plane. Dr. Kopernik was homesick for the lab and the equipment that was under his control. And it was this fastidious devotion to his work that cut off his life at age 43. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak in the case that we know as Primal Scream. That was the 13th original episode of The Night Stalker, aired originally on January 17th, 1975. It was directed by Robert Shearer, and co-credit for writing goes to Bill S. Ballinger and David Chase. Bill S. Ballinger, by the way, was one of the writers on The Mike Hammer Show, so I imagine that uh, Darren McGavin knew him and brought him aboard. We'll definitely have to talk about the script as we go along because there were some big time changes. I'm Mike White and with me as always is Mr. Chris Dashew. I'm here and I'm ready to talk about a gorilla? Question mark? It's definitely not a gorilla. It's But that's what the cops said. Cops are giving Carl the runaround on this episode. And you can't believe the cops, sir. Captain Maurice Molnar played by John Marley, who most famously woke up one morning with a horse's head in his bed. That's right. That's right. And man, does he ham it up in this episode something fierce. It reminds me of that little speech that he gives to uh, uh, to, to Robert Duvall. Let me lay it on the line for you and your boss, whoever he is. Johnny Fontaine will never get that movie. I don't care how many Dago, Guinea, what greaseball goombas come out of the woodwork. I'm German-Irish. Well, let me tell you something, my crook, Mick friend. I'm going to make so much trouble for you, you won't know what it is. Mr. Walsh, come a lawyer. I have not threatened. I know almost every big lawyer in New York. Who the hell are you? I have a special practice. I handle one client. Now, you have my number. I'll wait for your call. By the way, I admire your pictures very much. John Marley really uh, plays to type as it were, and he really goes for it in regards to the dickhead police officer in a way that, I mean, we, we've we seen dickhead police officers in regards to Kolchak through this entire show, but at the same time, we've never seen one so aggressive. He's real aggressive. He goes for it big time. Which is kind of refreshing in a way. I don't know if you've ever seen him, but he was also in a movie that Bob Clark directed that was also written by, oh God, I can't remember the guy's name. He, he wrote Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things along with, uh, uh, with Bob Clark, Dead of Night. And it was fantastic. Now, I mean, I've only ever seen him in The Godfather. And I mean, he's great in kind of the bit part in The Godfather. So it was nice to see him doing something kind of different in this, but at the same time, kind of the same. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, he's got that very staccato delivery and that, I don't know what that accent is. I guess a New York accent, perhaps? Like a fake New York accent? Like what someone thinks a New York accent is? 
Yeah, he was very busy in 74 because he was also doing an episode of McLeod and then a thing of Beretta right afterwards. So my man was just hopping from uh, TV detective to TV detective for a while. You know, there's a lot of really big name guest stars in this episode. Obviously, we'll get to Jamie Farr at some point. But, you know, you've got John Marley and then you've got Barbara Rhodes playing only known as the secretary who it's such a weird scene. It's such a bizarre scene between her and Kolshak. Because, like, it, it it feels like it hasn't aged well, because it hasn't. But at the same time, watching Kolchak feeling threatened by a woman who's taller than him, I can't help but find that immensely entertaining in a way. Because, it, again, it just, it further fleshes out the character of Kolchak and him just being, like, a total neurotic in a way. And the way he's, like, kind of weirded out by a woman who's taller than him. Catherine Woodville, who plays Dr. Helen Lynch, and we'll talk about her in just a minute, she has the most familiar voice to me. And the only thing I can put my finger on is maybe that I recognize her voice from when she was on Star Trek. But otherwise, I'm just like, why do I know this lady's voice so much? Not even the face, but when she speaks, I was just like, I know that voice. I felt like it's kind of disappointing how little she's really given to do. She's essentially laid up in a bed all episode. It's disappointing because I feel like there's more to her character. And, you know, it's one of those things where when you look back on the episode, I mean, this is a good episode. I, I, I have more positive things to say about this episode than negative. But the one negative is that her character is not really given much to do, which is unfortunate because I feel like there's more there than we're given. Yeah, I like this episode as well. The pacing is a little strange for me at times. Like, we'll definitely get to the last murder that is committed by our creature or creatures. Are there more than one of these things? Because the original title for this episode was The Humanoids. So it wasn't Primal Scream, and it was pluralized. I'm thinking that they killed one and that another one grew as well. It's really tough for me to put my finger on that. They don't make it seem like there's less than one, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, I got the sense that, I don't know, because there there seemed to be the idea that there were more than one. I mean, they didn't really explore it in a way, because they kind of only ever showed one on screen, and I'm assuming that that was due to budgetary constraints. But at the same time, it kind of seemed like there were more than one. We were talking last time about Craig R. Baxley, who played Mr. Ring, and I can only assume that this is his brother because Gary Baxley plays the humanoid, though, strangely enough, Paul Baxley plays Dr. Jules Kopanek, the main guy who gets killed right at the beginning. And Craig R. Baxley is in this as a character named Robert Gurney. So it might be the Baxley boys coming to town. I'm not sure. And don't forget, in the most recent Predator film, a character is named for Craig R. Baxley. Is that the Keenan-Michael Key no, character? No, Thomas Jane's character. Oh, very good. Right. So, I mean, again, you you know, Craig R. Baxley, there you go. You, he he's kind of seems to be everywhere, as it were, kind of permeating everything. So good on him. I have to assume that this Paul Baxley is also one of the Baxley brothers because he's also a stuntman. And Gary Baxley also a stuntman. And Gary Baxley, though sadly Paul Baxley passed away uh, a few years ago, Gary Baxley still working, still credited and stuff going up to 2018. 
good on him, man. This is, these guys have been around for a long time and still doing great work. Yeah, and, you know, pretending to be a weird ape human takes a lot of skill. You know, in this episode, and I, I know we've kind of had this, we had this critique a couple times, like the Spanish Moss murders, which I think this episode is vastly better than that one for for many reasons. I, I think that, you know, it, they explore some stuff with the humanoid creatures towards the end of the episode that I wish they had kind of gone after earlier because, you know, they, they show the creature to be vicious in a way, but kind of misunderstood. And then towards the end of the episode, they really dig into that idea and then they kind of abandon it once the cops show up. And that's unfortunate because I feel like they had something really interesting going on with the characters of the humanoids until they kind of dropped it right at the end. So we should probably see what this episode is about. And it starts off with a murder of Dr. Jules Kopechnik, who is a scientist who's come back from Helsinki, where he was at a conference, only to unfortunately get murdered by a creature that he has helped bring to life. So it's almost that Frankenstein thing that we were talking about with Mr. Ring last time, though he has brought these creatures back inadvertently it sounds like he and his assistant um or uh, fellow doctor i should say dr helen lynch they were working on these core samples for um an oil company and they found some cells that were still viable and they managed to bring these things back and i don't think that they meant to fully have them form into these neanderthal type creatures that Due to a screw up and a freezer breaking down that the creatures gestated and came to life. And, and it's kind of funny because where are they going to gestate in a bucket? That's where they ended up gestating. But luckily, Helen is out of commission because she was in an automobile accident. And that's why she is in that bed throughout the entire thing. And then he comes back, ends up getting murdered. And then it's now our typical Kolchak story as far as him trying to uncover the truth of this and coming in, seeing this body that has had its arm ripped off, getting the brush off from John Marley, who we mentioned, who's Captain Maurice Molnar and who really dislikes Carl right from the get go and is constantly smashing Carl's camera because Carl really wants to get a picture of one of these things. Sir, sir, he smashed it accidentally. Oh, I'm sorry. It was an accident. How dare you accuse the Chicago police of such a lascivious act? This isn't the LAPD after all. $125 for that camera? Holy shit, that's a lot of money for that little piece of shit camera. <laughs> I was I was sitting thinking, like, that's a lot for that camera, Kolshak. What are you talking about? I think he might have been padding it. I think so. Maybe just by, like, maybe, like, $100? So it's interesting that this is right before – I want to say this is right before the energy crisis. But the oil company is definitely the bad guy in this, even more than the Neanderthals. Yeah, no, the, the oil men are not painted in a very – positive light at all and i i mean you know it's kind of forward thinking because obviously in 2018 people are kind of thinking about you know alternate energy sources and stuff so oil is kind of paint big oil is kind of painted in a negative light so this is kind of forward thinking in a way and yeah those characters are pretty scummy and by pretty i mean really scummy especially thomas kitzmiller played by pat harrington jr who is about you know one of the worst of them all 
such a slimy PR guy, and he's like, well, I can handle any of this kind of stuff, but how am I going to spin the story of this gorilla coming back? And the whole oil company is great at giving Kolchak the runaround, which is something that you can't do to Carl Kolchak, I'm afraid. So he is so dogged in this episode. This is one of the times where he just pulls out all the stops to the point of even uh, impersonating a guy in a hospital and wheeling himself around so they can get closer to the hospital door and hear, you know, the real goings on of what's going on in there. I'm surprised that they left the door open, but hey, what you going to do? I thought he was recording it through a closed door. Oh, that could be. That could be. Yeah, I thought he was recording it through a closed door and it, they were just being exceptionally loud. Uh, I, I do want to mention, and I don't know if you caught this, and, and I didn't catch it until I went and looked at the IMDb. Apparently, everyone's favorite curmudgeon turd from The Office was in this episode. Creed Bratton was in this episode. I didn't know that. He was uncredited as man entering lab. See, I don't watch The Office, so I'm not sure who that is. Yeah, The Office is kind of overrated, so that's a different story. But I am curious, because he plays a, a bigger part in this episode than essentially anyone else. And one of the more memorable scenes, especially for me, because I felt his character is one of the better guest cameos that we've had. I mean, we've had some folks on this on this show who have guest cameoed and not really been given anything to do. We've had Phil, Phil Silvers at one point, not really given anything to do. Yeah, we had Dick Van Patten on the They Have Been, They Are, They Will Be episode, but Jamie Farr in this episode is given more to do than most guests are, and I think he totally makes this episode in a way, but at the same time, he kind of sticks out because it's weird that we're giving this one random character so much time with Kolshak, and he's not given anything to do up until this point. And so when they give him so much time, it's almost like it feels like he was on another show. Yeah, it's like they suddenly burst into room 222, and there he is as this teacher who is just dying to get away from his students already. It's like, what do you say? Like, it's it's November, so they're only like two months into the school year, and he's already looking at where he's going to vacation come, what, June 8th, I think he said. Well, and he also said, you know, if you want to see real ape men, why don't you stick around for the next period? Man, you really don't like your job, Jamie Farr, huh? Well, and he's also very mad because all of his uh, PhD friends, they're the ones that are getting called by these secret people and not letting him in on it just because he is a high school pedagogue. Yeah, he his character, again, just kind of comes out of nowhere, and that to me is a little, it's a little bizarre. So I'm curious, why don't we have an interview with Jamie Farr on this episode? Two, almost two years ago. We were just starting out the Kolchak tapes, and I started going through the list of who's still around, who's not around, who can I reach out to, all these things. And I reached out to Jamie Farr, and believe it or not, he got back to me like that. And here we were, it was right around Christmas of 2016, and I'm emailing back and forth with Jamie Farr. And I grew up watching MASH, so I'm just like... Oh my God, I can't believe I'm getting emails from Jamie Farr right now. And, you know, like Klinger was based out of Toledo because Jamie Farr was based out of Toledo. So I'm like waiting to drop a Tony Paco's reference and all this stuff. And he was like, well, you know, I've had some bad times being on radio shows. People have brought me on there and then they've like kind of 
Yeah, almost like uh, shock jock kind of stuff. It sounds like they were basically trying to humiliate him. So he's like radio shows. Yeah, so radio shows. Well, oh dear, oh dearie. What are you gonna do? So right. I'm like, well, we're not really that kind of show, and no, I have nothing but the utmost respect. And you know, here's some episodes because by then we had done like maybe a, a handful of these things. So I'm like, here you go. Here's some of this stuff. So this is more like what it's like. So cut to maybe six months later, and I'm talking with Frank Santo Padre from uh, Gilbert's Amazing Colossal Podcast or whatever that is, and kind of pulling back the covers on the podcasting world. We exchange contacts sometimes. So I'm like, hey, you know, I'm trying to get a hold of this person, and he might slip me an address or a phone number or something, and he'll say, yeah, I'm trying to get a hold of this person, and I'll do the same. So he's like, I'm trying to get a hold of Jamie Farr, and I'm like, well... He's had some bad experiences in the past, but here you go. Here's his email address. Maybe you'll have better luck. Cut to two months later. Boom. Who's on the podcast for Gilbert is Jamie Farr. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. That's great that you got him. You broke through. Like he's going to now know what a podcast is. And he had a great time on this. So great. This will be no problem. I've never gotten a response to any email email since then. What a bummer. It's a total bummer. It's a total bummer because he's a massive part of this episode. And I even wrote to him like again three weeks ago like, hey, we spoke two years ago. Um, really hoping to get you on here. It's the episode that you're on. You're fantastic in it. We're not shock jocks, bro. Definitely not shock jocks. Jamie Farr, as far as I'm concerned, is as big as a part of this episode as Simon Oakland and Darren McGavin are. And those two guys, unfortunately, we can't interview them because they've passed away. So thanks, Shock Jocks, for humiliating Jamie Farr, an old man. Good job. Yeah. What, I mean, what could they humiliate this guy with? What, they- like, like, what the fuck is your problem? What? Mash fucking suck, dude. Yeah, said no one ever, so thanks. What are they going to do? Like, play clips from Cannibal Run 2 and be like, oh, you made fun of Arab people. And he'd be like, I'm from Lebanon, you idiots. You know, like, it doesn't make any sense. What would they have done? People ruin things for other people. Fuck you, Shock Jocks, for fucking with Jamie Farr. We would love to have him on this show still. I mean, the invitation is still open. So last time I checked, if you somehow end up listening to this, you know, reach out to us. But it is unfortunate because, you know, there are people out there that have nothing better to do than kind of be turds. So, But he's a massive part of this episode, and he's probably the most memorable part of this episode for me. Well, yeah, and he's such a linchpin, like really getting... Kolchak to the right place and then his whole thing with the skulls and all this and there's some really good interaction between him and Darren McGavin and we were talking off air a little bit like he was already in MASH at this point. MASH had already been going on for like two years so this must have been I don't know like a little bit of a break or something and they're like hey Jamie come on over and do this because he was as the years went on with MASH, he became more and more and more part of it, especially once uh, Radar left. So he was one of the main players, especially towards the end. But even at this point, he was in almost every episode of MASH. So it was he was definitely uh, bigger than some of the other folks that were coming in. I was very surprised to see Sandra Gould come in as the landlady, and she was being that exact 
uh, Mrs. Kravitz character from Bewitched, but she had been doing that, like, I think Bewitched ended quite a few years before this one did. So it was nice, kind of a little throwback for her to be that whiny landlady type, really in other people's business and stuff. So it was kind of nice to see her in there, too. If not for our luck, the monster would have jumped through our window. I really like the interaction with uh, Updike in this one. Jack Greenwich really knocks it out of the park. He even goes after Vincenzo at one point, which is pretty nice, because you normally only see Kolshak going after Vincenzo. And you have him kind of sticking it to Vincenzo. With, I mean, obviously, a very much like a dad joke. But at the same time, like, you know... If you don't see it coming, it's pretty great. About that eight-man line you got going. Yeah? Something just happened that I think may blow the whole thing. It's incredible. Well, what? What? A friend of mine at the Herald called. Yeah? Two days ago, there was a truck accident. A van carrying illegal jungle animals went off the road. The driver just came forward and confessed. Confessed to what? It seems some dangerous animals did escape, including two large apes, a pair of adult African gibbons, as well as a Malayan tiger, a civet cat, and a pie cost. What's a pie cost? 89 cents. <laughs> Abbott and Costello, 1946. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. And what's nice is that none of that stuff was in the script. Like, the script changed a ton before it finally hit the air. And I want to say the last revision date was just like a month prior to this going on air. So I imagine David Chase really polished this thing up, but... None of that stuff as far as the car and the parking spot and the, uh, the, the whole idea of, you know, uh, what's a pie for, all of that stuff was not in the script. So that all came up later. There was this whole thing of like Ron and Miss Emily going to a record store and at one point Miss Emily can't find her record that she bought and they're like, Oh, would you buy Montavani or this or that? And she's like, No, I bought Gladys Knight and the Pips. So that would have been good for a little laugh, but not nearly as good as the repartee between them that actually ended up in the episode. Yeah, no, Jack Rennett has kind of been given not a whole lot to do in some of these episodes, and it's nice to see him given a little bit more than normal. And he even gets to go out in the field, which was good. Yeah, yeah, he shows up and he's like, Kolchak, I beat you to it. And it's like, oh, man. Go on, Ron. The first string is here. But I don't know if you know this, but if it's Chinese food, it better be good food. That was such a weird line to deliver early on in the in the episode. Kitz Miller gets like, if it's Chinese food. As long as it's, if it's Chinese food, it better just be good food. It's like, what are you talking about? Again, and, you know, there are parts of this show that haven't aged well. And I'm just like, what are we going at here? Well, there's definitely a great 1974-75 joke in here, which is about vice presidents and how sometimes vice presidents cause the most trouble of all. And I was just like, oh, okay, we're right around Watergate now, aren't we? All right. Those jokes haven't uh, haven't aged well for people who don't get it. But, you know, overall, I think it's I think it's a really fun episode. I think it's a good episode. You know, ultimately, again, we get this kind of muddled monster creation uh, of the the humanoid primate, what have you, and it's not given much room to breathe. At the end of the episode, you're kind of given. There's a little bit more depth that you're given, but they're not given enough to really justify turning the characters right at the end. Because you know, Kolchak tries to reason with the humanoid right at the end in the sewers, and you think he's getting to him, and then obviously the cops show up, 
And so it's unfortunate because that should have been kind of the case from the get-go. They should have really played into the idea that, well, these monsters really aren't monsters, similar to what they did with Mr. Ring. Yeah, because can you imagine, like, these things wake up in this lab and they have no idea where they're at, no idea who they are. They have no means of of anything. So, of course, they're going to be pretty hostile. Yeah, they end up murdering some people. And it's interesting, too, like, as far as who they choose to murder, because even when we're talking about Mr. Ring, it's like, okay, he kills the postal worker so he gets the uniform he kills this guy so he can have this and there's this very clear-cut reasoning behind that and these guys are more like crimes of opportunity like there's the guy who's watching an old tv movie and one of the creatures jumps through the window and it's like okay i'm not exactly sure what he was after going after this guy so it was more just like pure rage and mischief kind of stuff. So, and just that it was close to the oil company's headquarters. So they didn't really have like, Oh, they were here for food or for this or for that. I mean, unless taking the arm and trying to rip the guy's leg off, unless that's their food and they're taking that off someplace. But yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like the one that got me was, uh, the uh, African-American lady, Rosetta, uh, near the end of the the episode. But I think it comes a little too early, her disappearance, like her being uh, attacked by the creature. And then we see her shoe in the, like it's underneath a stadium or something, the caves basically where Carl ends up finding the creature. So we see her shoe there and it's like, okay, but you know, it didn't necessarily make sense that now the creature was taking people away as opposed to like just attacking them and killing them in their homes. Again, you know, with this show and the villains being what they were and some of the villains really falling flat, namely the werewolf, namely the Spanish moss murders. It's, it's disappointing to see them kind of go in this interesting direction, but not really give it room to breathe. You know, as I was watching this, I kept thinking of other unfrozen caveman lawyer type movies. Like, and I'm trying to remember, like, when, who was it, that Timothy Hutton? You really just wanted to see Caveman Lawyer, didn't you? I did want to see him. Oh, I don't understand, Mr. Madam Judge, I was frozen at the time. Yeah, that's whenever I think of cavemen frozen in the ice, I think of Caveman Lawyer and that episode of the X-Files where they come upon the frozen UFO. And it's the same kind of thing where it's like, there's something frozen in the ice. What could it be? I don't know if you've ever seen Iceman from 1984 with Timothy Hutton. That's actually, I kind of really like that movie. It's probably not very good. I saw it last time, probably pretty close to 1984, but I remember really liking it. And then, of course, um, I kept thinking also of Altered States, the uh, Ken Russell movie. And that was, I want to say that was like 1980. So there must have been something in the air as far as like, and I think also somewhere around this time was, uh, what was that movie, uh, uh, Quest for Fire. So it's like, we must have had like a real uh, thing for uh, early man right around this time. Good old Quest for Fire, starring none other than Daryl Hannah and Rutger Hauer, right? I'm wondering if Daryl Hannah was in Clan of the Cave Bear. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. That movie, too, fucking sucks. And that was 1986, and let's see, hold on. Quest for Fire was 
1981. So yeah, we had a big thing going on in the early 80s for cavemen. And you also have that caveman book, Neanderthal. So there's that as well about like Neanderthals that are found. Yeah, it's this weird like minor movement in fiction for like cavemen stories. And when was caveman with with uh, Ringo Starr? <laughs> Oh, and Dennis Quaid. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Oh, can we just forget that we ever mentioned that on a podcast? Oh, because no, no. That's, that, that movie is a classic. Is atrocious. Who else is that? Isabella Johnny is in that? 1981, baby. Am I right? Isabella Johnny's in that, right? Barbara Bach, Shelley Long. I'm not sure. Barbara Bach. That's who it is. Oh. Directed by Carl Gottlieb, who I've oh. talked to before because of, uh, well, the Jaws connection, but also Dr. Detroit. Oh, dear. Yeah, I don't know what the caveman thing is in the late 70s, early 80s, but man, was not good. <laughs> and again, you know, this. I like this episode. It's just... Either commit to the cavemen being kind of misunderstood or just have them be menacing outright. Don't tread the line and then really not commit. And what is up with those weird special effects when Carl is getting choked out by that caveman? It's like, right? I didn't understand that at all. Is I'm thinking maybe that's like it's Carl's POV, so it feels like time is moving slow and the cops are taking forever. Or something, but that was weird. Yeah, it was one of those things where I I was wondering why they decided to kind of go in this weird stylistic direction that they haven't done at all in the season. And it kind of slows down time. And yeah, it's just it doesn't make any sense because this is the first time they've ever done something like that. It was a strange choice for that one. And I mean, he's getting choked out by the humanoid, but at the same time, like, it's just it feels unnecessary. Coming off of Mr. Ring, this is a tough sell, but I agree with you when you said that this is not a bad episode. This is a pretty solid episode. There are some weird, like, you know, missteps here and there along the way, but I'd say that this is much more on the good side than anywhere near the bad side, especially because of Jamie Farr, Ron Updike, and some of the other players in here. And then, you know, some actual, like, the Neanderthals, luckily, they don't show them too closely until the very end. And then, you know, we got some good, like, Chaka-looking effects going on here. So it's not as bad as the werewolf when it comes to this prosthetic makeup that they're putting on these guys. Yeah, it helps when you don't light your monsters completely. Exactly. Yeah. When you kind of light them dimly in a sewer with red light, it really allows you to kind of get away with some less than stellar makeup work. And I think that that works. That's great for me that that works perfectly. Exactly. Yeah. You're showing us enough. So it's not like Spanish moss monster where it's just like, I can't see anything. I can't see any. Oh, okay. Now I see it. And it looks really bad here. It's like, I can't see anything, but that's actually a good thing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely on board with the humanoids in this episode. Again, I wish that they had kind of really settled on their, disposition and kind of their motivation. But at the end of the day, I, you know, this episode's better than most, especially with the effects, the way they were. So Chris, what is going on over at the culture cast these days? 
Well, in November, we're kind of just uh, wrapping up the the end of the year movies that are coming out, and also, uh, you know, still kind of reeling from horror October with all of our found footage horror movies. So we're just kind of doing that, kind of uh, waiting to get to Jackie Chan month in December. But uh, you can find the podcast that I'm on over at culturecast.com. I also do a Tales from the Crypt podcast twice a month with our good friend Father Malone, which you can find over at Chronicles FTC. Dot com And also, Mike, Mike, and Father Malone and I do a Twilight Zone 1985 podcast where we talk about one episode of Twilight Zone 1985 once a month. You can find that podcast over at TwilightZone85.com. What have you been up to over at the projection booth, Mike White? Well, November kicks off as Noir-vember for us, so we are doing actually uh, doing one thing that's based on a Jim Thompson book, which is The Getaway, and we're doing three movies that are based on Raymond Chandler books. So we're going to be talking about Murder My Sweet, The Big Sleep, and The Long Goodbye. So I'm really looking forward to rewatching and revisiting all those films because some of those are friggin' awesome. And you can find that over at projectionboothpodcast.com. So as always, I want to thank John Walker for the music. You can find out more about the Colchak Tapes over at colchaktapes.com. Next month, we are returning to Night Stalker 2005 territory. Sorry. We are talking about Into Night. I don't know if I remember that episode at all. So that should be an interesting time getting back in there. And I don't think that we have any of that pesky, overarching story to deal with. Well, yeah, they already tied it up in the last episode, so I sure hope not. So no marks on the wrist or anything. Oh, darn. (laughs) What a bummer. I am so disappointed. Thank you to everybody for listening. Like I said, go on over to ColchakTapes.com for more information. And you can also go over to iTunes and leave us a review. It would be really cool if people are listening to this and actually enjoying it to give us a review over there. Hopefully we haven't said too many political things because I know that the politics have ruined the other podcasts that I'm on. The police and the high-priced scientific help put it together just as I did. With the proper dosage of tranquilizer, the creature became manageable. It's a great word, isn't it? Manageable. They took it, or should I say him, a few moments ago. He's going to be tested, studied, probed, I imagine. Captain Molnar took my camera, again, saying that I was unmanageable. But I want to sue to get it back, and I promise myself that. And if I do, and if I do get it back, and if Vincenzo will publish the story, and you'll see the pictures, they may not be too good. They may be blurry, they may be titillating and not convincing. You might not really want to believe them. But you go ahead, you believe them. And ask yourself, what happened to him, to it? Will he thrive in our hands? Is he that much like us? Will they be able to make him 